Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it is for its in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie and that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from among or from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Um, Hey, Chris, can you give me a glass of water, please? Thanks. Father, we uh, come to you with uh, great thankfulness and great anticipation because that is the meaning of Advent. And today I pray that you will help us to know again why you came but also to know how we can be a people who are sent, to know who we're sent to, thank you, sir, who um, we're called to serve, what it means to serve. Or help us to know you in such a way that we um, become joyful, humble servants of you. Help us to know us in such a way that allows us to see our need for you, for that to happen. Help us to become a church that is consumed by you and therefore free to serve, to go, to be sent. Confront us, Lord, about what it is we're holding on to today that stops us from being servants, stops us from being people sent by you. Spirit, free us. Help us to see the glory of yourself in your gospel, the fullness of it, so that we can go, we can be sent. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, it's a rather peculiar scripture, and I know you might be thinking it's not, I mean, it's kind of, actually, it's nice to a certain extent. There's some things in there that it's a little iffy or, or I have some questions about, but that seems pretty, pretty nice. I don't think you understand, perhaps, the fullness of what's being said here. Um, and so, uh, I want to look at this because I think um, in this picture of uh, this city in Babylon, we see a lot of our culture today. We see a big picture of who we are as a people. Um, but we also see um, where we are as far as a people separated from each other and separated from God. We are exiles as uh, Israel was at this time. Uh, but I think we're also going to see that Babylon too are people of exile. So we're going to spend some time looking at that and we're going to see how it connects to our world today. Um, but I also want to uh, stay on our topic, which is... Um, Jesus came to send. And so uh, after we break down the passage a bit, we're going to try to answer a few questions, four questions, that, that, those four being, who are they who are sent? Well, actually, sorry, my first question actually will be, who are they sent to? 
So the first question, who are they sent to? The second question, who are they who are sent? Who are the sent? The second question, or the third question, I'm sorry, is what empowers them to be sent? And then the last question, what do those people look like? First question, who are they? Who are, uh, there's, who are they sent to? Second question, who are they that are sent? Third question, what empowers the sent? Last question, what do those people look like? But again, before we get into that, let's talk about what is going on here in Babylon. So um, Israel has been taken captive. Uh, Babylon sent an army out, destroyed Israel, uh, destroyed their, their uh, home, their capital, and they took a large group of them and brought them to their city. Um, and so we have this real strange idea of what's going on here. Because you see, the leaders of this city, the men who serve them, have the blood of Israel on their hands. People were killed. People were hurt. People were brought to a place they didn't want to go to. Most of us would probably say, okay, well, how do we get out of this situation? Or, okay, how do we bring justice on these people? God answers, asks that same question, but answers it in a different way than we probably would. What does he say to them? Build a house and live in them. Move into their city. Plant gardens in their city and eat from the produce. Grow your family there. Set your roots there. Join in their community. Those people who have destroyed your home, make a home near them. Those people who have the blood of your family, your friends on their hands, live in community with them. It says uh, in our in the ESV, which some of you might have read from, if you have the white Bibles in the back or you followed our lead here, we usually read from the uh, English Standard Version. Um, what it says uh, in verse uh, 7, it says, But seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare is, uh, proud. you might have read it elsewhere as peace or shalom. Um, that word peace in our language, has a, a great meaning, but it does not convey the fullness of the shalom from which it comes from in the original language here. That language implies a completeness, a soundness, a welfare, a peace, or a completeness in number, or safety, or soundness in body, welfare, health, prosperity, peace, quiet, tranquil, contentment, peace in relationships, friendships, social order, human relationships, and with God, especially in covenant relationships. Peace from war. Peace in a whole. A completeness. And so God says to Israel, those oppressors, seek their shalom. Seek their complete peace. Live in their life in such a way that they find complete peace. This, of course, was not the uh, message that Israel was, was expecting. Um, Israel wanted more, as uh, I talked about in my first two sermons of the series, they wanted to be like Jonah and David. Jonah, who wanted um, uh, the uh, city to which he was sent, Nineveh, to be destroyed because they were oppressors. They were dangerous they were dangerous to him, to his family. They had already hurt people. They were dangerous to the fulfillment of God's prophecy of, from my kingdom Israel will the servant come. And so David, or, um, Jonah wanted their destruction, and he was willing to sit by and see them destroyed when God told him to go and to seek their repentance. He decided, I'm going to run away and hope for their destruction. David, uh, in Psalm 69, which was my, the second uh, scripture we looked at in this series, he prayed to God, 
that his enemies would be destroyed and that he would be brought out of the mire, out of the deep uh, that had consumed him because of their um, slander against him, because of their oppression against him. And he worried again about himself, about, his, about, about the people of Israel, his family, his friends. And then he worried about God's, if God, that God would be slandered because they were slandering him, that God would, God's glory would be diminished. And we, we see, I think, in ourselves a similar thing that would happen to us if we put ourselves in the place of these people in Israel. And Babylon comes along. And once again, there's a long history of Israel and Babylon. Babylon comes along and once again oppresses and destroys and enslaves to a certain extent. And so those who were brought with them back to the city of Babylon, the city in Babylon. They're, they are exiles, but they also see many different exiles. They see a diverse group of people because Babylon um, kind of was the impetus to Greece, which Greece took to the next level, uh, or I should say the Roman Empire, not Greece, sorry. Um, the Roman Empire, um, which was to say, look, there's a few ways we can deal with people that we have military conflict which to which we win. Uh, we've conquered. We've captured. Uh, we can kick them out of their kingdom, force them out into wherever. Um, if we do that, they're likely to return angry. Um, or we can enslave them here within our kingdom. We can try to keep a tight watch over them. Well, if you do that, uprisings are likely. Third option is we can seek assimilation. We can seek to educate. We can seek to connect them to our lifestyle, to our um, way of doing things, to our community, to us. And then through that connection, they can find a bit of peace, perhaps. And there will be some sort of social order that connect us together and therefore won't lead to further conflicts like the other two. And so there are many types of exiles here, many different groups of people who have been conquered. And uh, so it's a city of exiles to a certain extent. And so they sought that assimilation. That is where we are at in this story. Um, Israel coming into this uh, had been fleeing from God had been uh, running from their covenant they made with God had been seeking um, holiness and seeking righteousness before God in ways outside of which God told them to seek them they had been sinning they had broken covenant with God and so God um, allowed this to happen to them and so that's where we pick up our story here and again so this happens to them and Israel is confused and they're really don't want to assimilate. They do not like the people of Babylon, and to a certain extent, who could blame them? But God has something greater for us than just this idea of who can blame them, loving people because of how they treat you. So Israel's uncertain what to do, and in the previous chapter, there was a prophet named Hananiah, and he says uh, to Israel, Thus saith the Lord, in two years God will break the yoke of Babylon, and you will come back. So in other words, he's predicting that something will happen. Whether it will be an uprising of Israel, some type of natural disaster or plague, something will be done by God in two years to end Israel's exile, and they will be able to go back to their land. In our prophet Jeremiah says, hold the brakes. It's a nice thought, but it's not God's plan. So again, he said in verse 8, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What does God want for them? It's the opposite of what you would do if Hananiah's prophecy was true. If, you know, we're expecting two years and God's going to destroy this place and we're going to go back home. There's no reason to move in. There's no reason to make a home here. You stay out. 
and you just wait. You are Jonah sitting on the hill, looking back on Nineveh, hoping and waiting for its destruction. He couldn't wait to get out of Nineveh because he didn't like it. He hated it, and he thought God's plan was destruction for it. But again, that is not what Jeremiah tells him to do. He tells him, you're going to be here 70 years or a lifelong time for one individual. A lifespan for one generation. So, move in. Make it your home. Build a community with these people. Not the community that, is, that uh, the Babylonians wanted, but a community nonetheless. So Israel is confronted with this idea of their exile. Being separated from home, being separated from where they wanted to be, being separated from peace in their minds. And like I said, I think Babylon, though they are home, are exiles in a similar fashion. It's interesting that in our country, we can have liberals um, who feel they want to pull their hair out because of how conservative the country is at times. And we have, con- uh, we have conservatives who want to pull their hair out because of how liberal the country is at times, or in ways, I should say. It's interesting to see people who, immigrants who come into this country and assimilate, assimilate quickly and are angry at times because other immigrants come in and don't assimilate as quickly or have bad things to say about some of the things that our culture upholds as important. And it's interesting how the opposite is true. Some who come in and struggle assimilating to our country are offended by or struggle with those who come in and assimilate quickly. It's interesting that there are people who have been here for many generations who love to celebrate and participate in many different cultures. And then there are some who have been here for many generations who love their culture and find it difficult when they're confronted with the cultures of many different people. The reality is, is there's just a brokenness in us. There's a separation in us that leaves us always longing for a place of peace, a home. We all feel as if we're exiles to a certain extent. Let's dive into uh, who are they who are sent? Who are the sent? What empowers the sent? And what do those people look like? So who are they sent to? Sorry, that's the, I keep messing up this first point. I don't know why I'm doing this. But who are they sent to is the first one. Augustine wrote a famous book called The City of God. And in it, he expounds on one of the major themes of the Bible. There are two cities here in this world. Not that cities in the, term, or in the definition that we think of today. But cities in the way of there are two groups of people who live in this world the first is the city of man the second is the city of god Um, some of you who have been at gateway for a while have heard me talk about jeremiah 21 a couple of times maybe more than that here because i think it is a major theme of the bible but also because um, we are a city church and this is a passage about cities which we're not going to spend a lot of our time on today but Uh, we have looked at this idea of these two cities when I've looked at this passage before with you. Um, And we've spent a lot of time in Revelations, uh, the end of Revelation, the last few chapters, three chapters of Revelations that make this distinction between the two cities. Um, But today I want to look at uh, Isaiah Isaiah chapter 24, 25, and 26, talk about the same two cities, the cities of Man and the cities of God. We're only going to look at the first one in depth, the city of man, through Isaiah 24. So if you uh, have your Bibles and you want to turn to Isaiah, we're going to be in chapter 24. Uh, 
So again, if you are turning there, you just want to go one book to your left. Let's read. Um, I'm going to read verses in 24. I'm going to start in 7 through 11. The wine mourns and the vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the the thrombosis is stilled. The noise of the jubilant is ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy is grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. So I've talked about this with you all many times. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy, of happiness, of merriment, of celebration. And uh, the city of man, we're told, the wine mourns. It's not joyful. It's anguished. It languishes. Um, So to drink it is bitter. To drink it actually... It languishes the merry-hearted. They sigh with its drink. Um, the music, the noise, the jubilance ceases. Um, the wasted city is broken and down, and every house is shut up so that none can enter. You're, you're without a home, without a place of peace, without a peace, place of security. Why is this so? Uh, Going back to verse, sorry, going back to verse 4 in Isaiah 24. We're told the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. It's because there was sin, because there was a brokenness of covenant, a breaking of covenant with God. God made clear to them their expectations, and they said to God, I will not do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Why does this result in this way? Well, because God is a God of holiness. If you want to be in a relationship with God, you need to have a proper holiness about you. To go before God unholy, to go before God as unrighteous, defiled, is a death sentence. It's not what God wanted for us, but it is the reality of who we are and who God is. So within this world, there are are people separated from God. And God is the one who makes wine good. And wine apart from God is not good. So one of the things... that we know about the people we're called to go and serve is they're separated. They're exiles. They're the people who the wine is bitter. Now, a lot of you go, wine can never be bitter. I've had it. It's great. I'm telling you, someday it will be. Someday, you're going to realize it's emptiness apart from God. This is the reality of what our world is. When we put our hope in things that cannot deliver hope, they will always let us down. They will always leave us longing. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, wrote this. Pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this undue exaltation, when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end... And it becomes a kind of end to itself. What he's saying here is, what we do is we say to God, look God, I know better than you what is good for me. You say you are this wise God and I say I am this wiser God. I know better than you what is good for me. And so I'm going to live for those things. Well, guess what you have to do then? You have to live for those things. Your pride has put you in a place where your hope is dependent upon those things. You now worship, put your hope in, and live for those things. They have become your end. 
And if they do not have the ability to give you what you hoped for, you will be left empty. The wine will become bitter. What happens is we become less and less physical or concrete or less able to experience good. So the first sip of that wine is tasty. It was like, great, this was, this was so good. This, but it was a fleeting good. And so you said, well, I'm going to drink more of it. And so the next time you went to have some of it, you drank more. And it actually gave you less satisfaction. And so you're like, well, I need more. And so you drink more. And again, less satisfaction. See, the good that you first experienced in wine decreases each time you go back to it. Because that's the reality of being separated from God. You're not growing more human. You're not growing more full. You're growing less human. You're growing less full. You're growing to be more empty. Because you are seeking to fill yourself with something that cannot fill you. So we have in this world, therefore, in the city of man, two things that we'll see abundantly clear in them. Exhaustion and oppression. First, it's a place of exhaustion. The people are tired because they're working so hard to achieve, to gain, to prove themselves. But the things they're seeking to achieve, to gain, the reputation they're seeking to build, the righteousness to which they're seeking to achieve cannot be achieved through the ways they're attempting to do so. And so with the emptiness comes exhaustion, a need to do more, to achieve more, to accomplish more. The achieve and the accomplish might, become, um, uh, might actually come through apathy, as well, a certain amount of cynicism. Laziness, what we might call it in some ways. Laziness for someone is, when we say someone is lazy, what we're really saying is they could have a better life if they lived this way. But what they believe is, what well, I can have a better life if I live this other way. And so laziness is really a cultural value. It's really us defining what we can find good in or how we can find good in pursuit of something and someone else saying nah i'm going to find good by not pursuing that and so we call them lazy they're not being lazy they're doing exactly what they think will lead to their good they're doing exactly what they think will help them find fulfillment but it's just as exhausting because in their laziness, and their, their attempt to abstain from the pursuit of something that the culture around them says is good, they're left just as empty, with just as many questions as to how in the world do I get out of this place of exile. The second thing is oppression. It's a place of oppression because, again, if we are constantly in need of gaining and achieving then everybody is just a ladder rung to step over in our way up the ladder. This is what we need to do. We need to get up the ladder. It's a place of exhaustion and oppression. Constantly climbing, constantly stepping on and over people to get to where we think we need to be in order to find that home, that shalom, that place of peace. So who are we to go to or who are we sent to? Everyone who's exhausted and oppressing. The oppression will appear in many different ways. And it's easy for us to look at sin as we talked about previously in this study and say sin is certain behaviors and we, it's, we can see these big oppressors in the world. But the reality is, is if you go through your life and what you are constantly asking yourself is, what do I need to do today 
to be happy. What you're never asking yourself is, what do the people around me need to be happy? Now you may be fooling yourself in saying, I'm asking this question, what do the people around me need to be happy? But for many of you, the only reason you're asking is because you've convinced yourself, I need to serve others in order to be happy. There's some truth to that, but absence of God, there's no truth in that. What are you living for? If you are living for yourself, you are living as an oppressor, no matter how you think you're living. So who are those who are sent? Let's go back to our scripture, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Uh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may, be, they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So if you fit under the category of all of God's people, you are someone who is sent to all the exiles. If you are an exile of God, not an exile of man, you are in this category of all. If you have a place to live within a community, you are one who is sent. If you can function in relationships, you are one who is sent. If you can do community, if you can partake in, an, in the economy, if you can plant and eat, you are one who is sent. If you are alive and you say you are a Christ follower, you are one who is sent. It's really short, but it is true. All of God's people who are living around the city of man, the exiled and broken of man, are sent. We're not all sent in the same way. Some of us are sent as home carers, as home builders, as families. Some of us are sent as businessmen and women. Some of us are sent as teachers. Some of us are sent as producers and growers and builders. We're sent in however way we live, we are sent. In whatever way you interact with the oppressors and the exiles, you are sent. What empowers the sent? Uh, Hebrews. Well, before we get there, um, our main scripture, uh, Jeremiah uh, 29, verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So he says, I know the plans I have for you. It's entirely possible for us uh, to have a friend we care about who is in need, and we set up a plan for them to grow out of that need. Once the plan has been put in place, it will happen naturally, it will flow, I can think of something else. It's entirely possible to do that. That is not what this verse tells us God does for us. Here's what how Spurgeon says it. He says, it is true, he did think of us that way. He has arranged everything about us, provided for every need and against every danger, but yet he has not ceased to think of us. His infinite mind, whose thoughts are as high above our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth, continues to exercise itself about us. I am poor and needy, says David, yet the Lord thinks upon me. We love to be thought of by our friends, indeed thought, enters into our essence of love. Delight yourselves this morning, O you who believe your God, in this heavenly fact that the Lord thinks upon you at this moment. The Lord has been mindful of us, and he is still mindful of us. You are thought of 
by the eternal God. You are always on his mind. Um, Jeremiah was sent by God to these people to remind them of this fact. That God cares about you. That God is with you. That God is using you. And that he is mindful of you. And so at the very beginning of this book... Jeremiah is telling these people, look, you have forgotten what God has done for you. You've forgotten who God is. And as I've, you all have heard numerous times, but we're in the book, so I'm going to take the opportunity to say one more time. One of my absolute favorite books or verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 2.13, where Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Before that, he says, look, why are you not remembering what I've done for you? When you, ha- when you don't remember what I've done for you, when you don't remember that you're on my mind, that I have made a covenant with you, you're going to forsake me for the, the fount of living waters, and you're going to hew out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is the wine that becomes bitter. You're going to fill this cistern, but it's broken and it's going to empty itself. And you're going to be left without the ability to have the good wine. That's why Jesus' first miracle was so important. Jesus wasn't simply saying, look, I have the ability to turn water into wine. He said, to the partygoers, you've been living for the inferior wine. The wine that is usually saved to the very end of the party when the, the people who, uh, so the family, when they're throwing the big wedding feast, will have their close family friends come, come earlier in the week. It's a, usually a, a long celebration. And they give them the good wine. And as, you know, more and more of the crowd comes, the less inferior the wine gets. And at this wedding party, the wine ran out, but Jesus made new wine out of water. And the guests were like, man, this is the good stuff. And Jesus is saying... I am the good wine. You've been living for the bad stuff. I came to give you the good stuff. And so Spurgeon continues on and he says this. Remember then that there's never a thoughtless action on the part of God. His mind goes with his hand. His heart is with his axe. He thinks so much of his people that the very hairs of their heads are all numbered. He thinks not only of the great thing but of the little things which are incidental to the great thing, as the hairs are to the head. Every affliction is timed and measured, and every comfort is sent with a loving and thoughtfulness which makes it precious in a sevenfold degree. O believer, the great thoughtfulness of the divine mind is exercised towards you, the chosen of the Lord. Never has anything happened to you as a result of a remorseless faith. But all your circumstances have been ordered in wisdom by a living, thoughtful, loving God. There's going to be times where you go through your Christian walk and you feel like an exile. You feel like God has left you, has just abandoned you, has led you into Babylon. But remember who God is. Remember that you are always on his mind, even when it doesn't appear so. This is why we can remember that. He says, if you you know the plans I have for you, you're going to be there for 70 years, and I'm working for your good. And in these seven years, when they're, 70 years when they're over, then you're going to call upon me. Then you're going to repent. Then you're going to come after me. See, again, we talked about this separation that comes from our whole unholiness that separates us from the holy God. In Hebrews 13, 12 through 14, this is what we're told. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. See, cities at this time 
we're really important, more so even than now. Um, improved tools, improved infrastructure, technology, and its improvement over the years have made cities less needed than they used to be. You needed a certain amount of denseness in order to survive and thrive during this time that we don't need now because of the advances that have taken place over the hundreds of years that have passed. And so cities were really important. And so within those cities, they didn't like criminals to exist there. And so when cities were, or when criminals were punished, they were usually removed from the city. And so Jesus, when he was punished as a criminal, was removed from the city. He was cast out of the city. He became an exile. Keller says this about this idea. He says, Jesus suffered outside the gate. What does that mean? On the cross, Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was cosmically thrown out. God forsook him. He lost the Father. He experienced hell, as it were, on the cross. I'll put it this way. Jesus Christ was thrown out of the city of God so that I could be brought in. Why? He got the punishment. He got the banishment. He got the exile. Sin deserves to be thrown out of the city. But Jesus Christ took it for us. We don't deserve to live in the city of God. We don't deserve to live in any city at all. It is through God's common grace that he gave us cities and the greatness that came out of them. We didn't deserve even that. But God in his great grace gave us that and he gave us the even greater grace of salvation. Of Christ being cast out of the city of man. Being exiled from us and from his father. So that we don't have to be dependent upon the city of man. We can find our shalom, our home in the city of God. Romans 8, I think, expounds on this idea of what is the beauty of the gospel. I'm going to read for you. If you turn to Romans 8, actually, flip to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 31. What then shall we say of these things? Is God for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he who raised. Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the long day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. What good do you want? See, sin is... We, we talked a lot, uh, or I talked a lot in my t- previous two sermons about sin is this idea of not being able to trust God, and therefore we're always saying to God, I need God and, or I need God and something else, or I just need something to find my holiness. But sin is not just that. See, that longing that you have that makes you say, I need God and, is a longing that you actually have, is real, is true, and should have a fulfillment. It's just it should be found in God not in something of this world. And so sin is always the pursuit of a good thing, just outside of the bounds in which we are to pursue it, to enjoy it, to embrace it, to celebrate it. And so every good thing that's had been at the heart of all of your sins, 
if God is the God who gave his son so that you can be forgiven, certainly he will give you that good thing. Now, I'm not saying he's going to give it to you in the way to which you used to pursue it. I'm saying to you, he's going to give it to you in himself. The thing you were wanting in your pursuit is what he will certainly give you. You will never be left longing. Okay, so what do these people look like? Well, these people who are, are people who live in fullness first. Um, for some reason, I don't have the guy's name in my notes. I lost it somewhere, but there's a, I'll find it in a moment. But there, there's a guy who wrote this about worship. He said, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying imagination of his beauty, the opening of the heart of his love, and the surrender of his will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable See, when we bask in the reality of who God is and what he's done for us, we worship. When we're confronted with the reality of who God is, who we are, and what he did for us in spite of who we are, we worship. And that worship is fullness. It, it leads to fullness. The quickening of the conscience by his holiness. The nourishment of his mind with his truth. The purifying of imagination by his beauty. The opening of the heart of his love. The surrender of his will to his purpose. We feel that we are exiles a lot of the time. We feel beaten down by this world. It's deceit, it's distraction, it's demand. There's an extraction of emotion and spiritual energy from it. It leads to a certain amount of emptiness in the Christian community, in the church. But worship, remembering who God is, remembering what God has done, replenishes. It fills. It gives us the good wine, the fullness. The knowledge that every good thing that I've ever wanted will be mine because of Christ on the cross, crucified in my place, because I put myself in God's place, separated myself from him through his death and resurrection and brought back into relationship with God. His grace, his mercy displayed on the cross tells me I am secure in my place with God. The sealment of the Holy Spirit, the intercession of Christ at the right hand of the Father, tells me I am secure in my place with God. Augustine in the City of God writes, Thus a good man, though a slave, is free, but a wicked man, though a king, is a slave. For he serves not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has vices. Again, if you say to God, I'm going to live for myself, you are going to live for whatever your vices are, whatever you've put your hope in in this world, and those vices are always going to leave you empty. But we, the church, should be full of the good wine of Christ, of God. And so we can see the exiles and the broken of the city of man and say, I'm abundant and I'm here for you. I have the good wine and I'm bringing it to you. You can only live for yourself when you don't have the fullness of God. You can only live for the filling of the longings. But when your longings are full, you can live for others. And so first and foremost, 
We are people of fullness. Now, again, some of you really like this idea of service and of you know building community, uh, even with with especially within a diverse group of people, a, a city of exiles, the city of Babylon. And let me be clear here. When you see things about repentance and you see things about truth, and when you say when I when you hear me say things like there's only one place where you can find real joy. And that if you pursue these things outside of the bounds in which God tells you to, you're sinning, you're wrong. You're saying to me probably, I'm cool with this whole service stuff. I'm cool with this whole loving stuff. I'm cool with this diversity stuff. But this idea of truth, this idea of boundaries, this idea of sin, of repentance, I'm not so keen on. Let me tell you, there's a, that's fine. But let me tell you what's going on here. Because some of you might be saying, I don't agree with this idea of truth at all. And I'm telling you, you do. The real question for us is, which one of our truths is right? Which one of our truths leads to a greater compassion? Which one of our truths leads to more humble people, more peaceful people, more servants? Which one of our truths leads to a people with more an attitude of superiority? A need to make people evil, a need to have enemies, a need to be greater than. Which one of us has found the greater than and is humbled and says, I'm not greater than anyone. I have a great God. And so we are a people of truth who live in a a, a culture that doesn't like truth. And so we, if you want to be someone who's sent, you need to be a person of truth. What does this mean? It means you're constantly checking yourselves against the truth of God. You're not living for yourself. You're living in the reality of, I've lived for something greater than me. I'm connected to a church. Membership is a gift. Because in membership... We humbly submit ourselves to God and his church by saying there's a truth out there of what a Christian is and having an apparatus within the church to affirm that there is real Christians and there are not real Christians. There is real truth about what the gospel is and not real truth about what the gospel is. There's real truth about what connects someone to God and real truth about what doesn't connect someone to God. And the church being able to say, we think you know the truth. We're bringing you in and affirming truth in you. That is a gift. It is a joy to be a part of a church like that because our world needs to know that there is truth in the gospel. I could go on about that, but I don't have a lot of time. We, we're people who know this world. Um, Spurgeon said this about the is, exiles heading into Babylon of, the, of the Israel. He said, the people in such a position as the Jews in Babylon were in danger in two ways. Either to be buoyed up by false hope and so to fall into foolish expectations or to fall into despair and have no hope at all. And so become a sullen and, and degraded race with who would be unfit for restoration and unable to play a part which God ordains for them in the history of mankind. That is true for us today. There's a couple of ways to look at the brokenness of this world, the cynical or the conservative, or the, um, the self-righteous or the um, self-ordained or self-controlled. Um, look, I'm all, all this is an accident. There's no value to anything, really, because we just happened because of an accident. Um, And so there's no good that can come out of any of this bad in this world. There's no good in any of us. There's nothing to live for. There's no meaning. There's a cynicism. There's an emptiness to it. You'll be exhausted by the cynicism. Because deep within you, there's a need for something more. A longing within you that pushes you for something greater. Then there's the opposite truth, which is ties all the physical pains, the emotional pains of this world to one's morality, to one's ethic. And so, look, if I just live a certain way, if everyone just lived a certain way, we would all have these good things. We would all have these, these 
when everything would be right, hakidori, everything would be good, no pain, no evil. So we go through life with the understanding that this world is ordered but fallen. Both are true, ordered but fallen. And so we're not surprised by the pains of this world that come from sin generally, but are not always attached specifically to our own personal sins. We're not surprised by the pains. We're not surprised by the exile. We're not surprised by the difficulties that come this way. But we're also full in them because we're not cynics. There's not an emptiness to the brokenness and to the pain. In 70 years, you will come to me. It's not a, not to say you need to wait 70 years now, but that's the reality. We're ordered but fallen. We're people who know sin. Sin is the same in all of us. The behaviors to which we live them out differ. But they, how we behave, though they might affect people in different degrees, is not any indication to the degrees to which we love God or love people. We fail in the exact same ways. God is not good enough for me, and I cannot trust him with my life, and I'm going to live for myself. Therefore, you're an oppressor. How you oppress will vary. The degrees to which your oppression affect people will vary, but you're to the same degree an oppressor, a sinner. And we know what it means to sink. So I talked about this in my last sermon. Jesus came and he sank as a servant for us. So here's the thing. When we know God in the way that we can know him, because of the cross and the resurrection. We are raised, as we talked about last time. Christ raised from the dead, not to stop sinking, but so that he can sink in an even greater way for us, at the right hand of the Father. As Romans 8 told us, we took that today, can bring the fullness of the goodness to which we need to us. And so we, in the same way, are full in the cross, so that we can sink to the oppressors of the Babylons and the oppressors of the exiles in Babylon. We can go where it, the people are hurting, where the people are broken, where the people are in need. And regardless of anyone's social economic status or cultural status, the only differentiator between the broken, the needy, is Christ. There is no one who has something of this world to an extent to which they are not broken or needy. There's no one absent of something of this world to the extent to which they are not broken or needy. We go where the people are hurting. We sink. Let's pray. Father, may you make us a church that is so in tune to your truth, so in tune to your holiness, your gospel of restoration and reconciliation, to your reclamation and restoration of us through your sacrifice for us, that we go, we allow you to send us. May we do so with a holiness of truth. May we speak it into each other's lives. May we display it through uh, the depth of membership here as a church, through discipleship and discipline and repentance and reconciliation. May we speak it in the form of the gospel to those who need it. We can serve no one in any greater way than to connect them to your truth. And yes, may we live in such a way that they see it and it opens their heart to the words of it. But Father, help us to be people who can share those words, can speak the truth of your gospel, who know the truth of your gospel and therefore is changed by it 
And we become sinkers, we become servants. We go to the broken, to the needy. No matter where they're at, socially, economically, politically, may we go. May we be a church that if you were to bring us out of this city, the, con- the conservative, the moralist among us, will say, and those people were kind of extreme in their grace and their acceptance. But I appreciated the order to which they brought through their love. May we be a church that the liberal, the progressive among us says, you know, their, their whole thing about truth, the absoluteness of it, the demand for repentance, I don't really like. But with them gone, I know we're going to have to raise taxes. I know I'm going to have to go to a place of the city I didn't feel comfortable going to now. I appreciated the order to which they brought to the most broken places among us. And we be a church that confronts this world through the way we serve. It makes them question their worldviews. It makes them see the truth of the law. It's purpose to lead us to your grace and to salvation and fullness in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we often, when we gather together, do include each other, like uh, Sunday.